Good morning from me as well. My name is Matt, and um, if you haven't heard already, I'm really, really glad that you are here. If nobody else has told you that this morning, glad that you guys are here. Um, we're going to be, we've already worshiped the Lord together in singing, and we're going to be worshiping the Lord together in His Word. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of a man whose life was changed in one of the most powerful ways. I mean, I, I don't think it's overstating it to say that this is the most amazing story of life change that this world may have ever seen, all right? So it's going to be a, a good morning. Before we get there, though, I've got a couple of friends that I want you to hear from this morning. So uh, Jared, Paul, and Lauren, can you come on up? This is Lauren Butler right over here. And then I'll go ahead and give that to you, Lauren. This is Paul and Jared Wells. And I just have a, a few questions for you, okay? So it happened, right? Yes, it did. You be sure this is turned on. <laughs> yeah, it's turned on. It happened, right? Yes, it did. Okay, just talk loud. Hello. So it happened, right, Paul? Yes, it did. Good. Jared, it happened? Yes, it did. Okay. Um, Lauren, when did it happen? Uh, a little over two years ago. Paul? For me, it started in elementary school, but it really came together last year. Okay, Jared. Uh, things hit me hard about sixth grade. Not hard. But... Okay, got it. Okay. Uh, Lauren, what was life like when it happened? I was at the lowest point in my life. Paul? about the same. I felt like I was going the right way and this kind of was, was like a surprise. Put me in the, put me in the right direction. Okay, yeah. good. All right. Uh, Lauren, in just a word or two, how did it happen? Um, it was a gift I didn't deserve. It was a gift I didn't deserve in the place I never expected. Good. How did it happen, Paul? Jared. Uh, have with some close friends at a mission trip. Good. But again, Lauren, it did happen. Yes, it did. It sure did, yes. It did. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Sorry about the mic. Well, if you um, haven't guessed by now what Jared and Lauren and Paul were talking about was their conversion, the moment that God interrupted their lives through the gospel. And, you know, it's really fun to hear a bit of that story from them, and I think it'd be awesome to hear from many more people. It's always super fun and encouraging to hear about what God has been doing in a person's life. And unfortunately, this morning, we don't have time to do that. But if we did, if we did take time to hear uh, people tell the story of their conversion, let me tell you what we'd hear. The details of, the con of their conversion story would be wildly different. Some people were saved when they were really young. Other people, they were saved when they were older, like in their adult years. Some people were saved through very dramatic circumstances, other people were saved through circumstances that might seem, by comparison, kind of vanilla. 
But that's just the details. That's the circumstances, the core of what happened, the substance of conversion. That's the truly powerful part. That's the truly amazing part. And if we had time this morning to hear many stories told of people's conversion, we'd hear lots of different circumstances, but the core of what happened in each story would be the same. The core of what happened when a person is saved, God works in a man or a woman's heart and their eyes are open to see God for who he really is and they see themselves for who they really are and they realize something. They realize they are in deep trouble and that they need a savior. And that's when Jesus, the one who defeated sin and death on the cross and by his resurrection does what he does best, saves And what that means is this. You and I should never say that the story of our conversion is boring. I've heard people say that before. Oh, my testimony is so boring. It's just not interesting at all. You know what? Um, Can I be honest with you? I think that's an insult to Jesus. Because the details of the story, the circumstances, yeah, by comparison to somebody else's story, those might seem kind of boring, but the core substance of what happened, that Jesus, by his love and his grace, took you who were dead in your sins and made you alive together with him, that's a miracle. And by definition, God does not do boring miracles. This morning, we're going to look at the story of a man named Paul. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, you know who Paul is. Paul, as a missionary, um, spread the gospel all over the ancient world. As a church planner, God used Paul to plant numerous churches, scores of churches, and raise up many men, many women to serve as leaders. As a writer, Paul wrote much of the New Testament. There's 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. And through that, God used Paul to literally shape the intellectual thinking of civilizations. And God has used Paul to help millions and millions of people throughout the centuries know and follow Jesus. I don't think it's overstating it at all to say that the impact of Paul's life is at a global, eternal level. And yet, where did Paul come from? What's his story? This morning, as we continue this series in the book of Acts, we're going to look at Paul's story. And what I'm praying for, what I'm hopeful for, or that by the time we're done together, that three things will be clear that in Paul's story, we can see how conversion works. Paul's story is a great place to see how Jesus saves people. But in his story, not only that, there are also some pretty powerful lessons for those people who may be here this morning who have already been saved. And finally, there's a very powerful message, a wonderful invitation for the person who might be here that no matter what your background is, has never put your faith and trust in Jesus. So this morning, let's take a look at Paul. 
We first met Paul back at the end of chapter 7 in the book of Acts. Um, This was at the time that a man named Stephen was being executed, being stoned to death for the crime of following Jesus and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. The the scriptures tell us that as the people who were participating in an execution, as they were doing that, as they were throwing their stones at Stephen, they laid their robes at at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was who Paul was before he changed his name to Paul, okay? The scriptures go on to tell us that as Stephen breathed his last, Saul gave his hearty approval. In other words, as Stephen died, the the public execution of a follower of Jesus, that was the sort of thing that made Saul go, yes, yeah. Pick up his story in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I want you to get the picture here. There's no sugarcoating it. Saul hated Jesus. He hated Jesus, and he hated those who followed him. To Saul, Jesus was a fraud, an imposter. And the men and women who followed him, they were a bunch of wacky, crazy people that deserved to be punished, to be thrown into prison, to be uh, incarcerated, to be murdered. Saul hated Jesus. He, He... Um, hated the people who followed him. And as the scripture said, he's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This isn't some peripheral thing about Paul. This isn't just, you know, some little thing that he kind of feels a little bit. No, this goes right to the core of who Saul was. The scriptures tell us later in the book of Acts that Saul was consumed with a raging hatred against Jesus and his followers. Not only had he cleared out many of the followers of Jesus there in Jerusalem, but now he wants to take his mission of persecution on the road to Damascus. And he wants to clear out more men and women who follow Jesus up there. But look what happens. It says, now as he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. 
and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Maybe I'm just kind of going out on a limb here, but more than likely, none of us have experienced such dramatic circumstances as that. Anybody seen a flashing light from heaven? Anybody been struck blind? Had an audible conversation with Jesus? There's no question that the circumstances of of Paul's conversion were dramatic. They were amazing. But remember, those were just the details. The core of what happened, that's what we need to focus on this morning. I'm believing that, that Paul's story The story of how God interrupted his life and saved him has three things, at least three things, to teach us about conversion. Let's be honest. In this work of conversion, the powerful work that God does to bring a man or a woman into a relationship with himself, there is a deep ocean of things about God and his power to save that we could talk about. We don't have time this morning. So what I want to do this morning is just focus on three, okay? Here's the first one. When a person becomes a Christian, that's the time that the Lord deals directly with you. A person becomes a Christian when the Lord deals directly with you. What that means is this. When a a person, at the moment of conversion, when a person becomes a Christian, and a Christian is something that you become, by the way. It's not something you're born into. It's something that you become. A person becomes a Christian when the Lord deals directly with you. Saul uh, was on that road to Damascus, the light flashed. He was, he was thrown to the ground. He heard the, the voice and has his face-to-face encounter. Saul says, who are you, Lord? And the response, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And now Jesus is going to deal specifically, personally, and directly with Saul. And Again, the details may be different in your story. But this is how conversion works. When a man or a woman is dealt directly with by the Lord. It's not some generic message that goes out. Conversion happens when the Lord deals directly with you. He's dead now, but one of the real giants of the 20th century in terms of, of gospel preaching and biblical study, was an Englishman named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this idea of conversion uh, in his, his little book, A Face-to-Face Encounter with Jesus. In that book, he says this. He's speaking about Saul, that at the time of Saul's conversion, Saul was the subject and Jesus was the object. Saul was the subject and Jesus was the object. It was as if Saul was was the subject and he picked up Jesus and was examining him, making his observations about Jesus, his judgments about Jesus, critiquing Jesus, and forming an opinion about Jesus. Saul was the subject and Jesus was the object. But at the time and the point of Paul's conversion... 
Jesus became the subject and Paul became the object. It's as if at that moment, at the moment that Saul was converted, Jesus took Paul and began to weigh him, to evaluate him, to consider him. And I think this is a really good way for us to think about how conversion happens. Because for you and me, when the Lord begins to deal directly with us, you are no longer the subject. It's about Jesus, the subject, taking you, the object, and and evaluating you, considering you, measuring you, weighing you, and seeing that you and I come up short. We come up wanting. This is how conversion happens. Again, the details may be different, but the core of it is always the same, that at the point of conversion, Jesus, the subject, takes you and begins to deal with you. And the second thing that happens at that point of conversion is that your a perception, a person's perception of God and their perception of themselves is radically changed. When a person, uh, when God begins to deal directly with a person, their, their perception of who God is and their perception of who they are is radically changed. You can get a glimpse of that looking at, at Saul's story. There in verse 3 it says, Now as he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul had a face-to-face encounter with the living Jesus. Um, Jesus dealt directly with Paul, and it turned his life upside down. There's another person who had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus and whose life was turned upside down. Her name was Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was a feminist liberal professor at Syracuse University. She was living a lesbian lifestyle and was deeply opposed to anything having to do with Jesus or the people who followed him. Rosaria Butterfield, as an academic, set out to do a study of the connection between Christianity and those on the so-called religious right. And as Rosaria Butterfield was doing her research, uh, an interesting thing happened. She was befriended by a Presbyterian pastor and his wife, and she thought, you know, this will be good. It'll help me understand a little bit more about how these crazy, wacko people think. But over the course of two years, as she read the Bible, as she began to understand who Jesus really is, not who she thought he was, a very shocking thing happened. God began to deal directly with her, and she was saved. She repented of her life of opposition and resistance to God and submitted her life to Jesus in repentance and in faith. And as she wrote about that experience in a book called The Conversion of an Unlikely Convert, 
I want you to hear what she said. She said, this word conversion is simply too tame. It's too refined to capture the train wreck I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. It's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. It was a train wreck. When he met Jesus on that road to Damascus, one locomotive is coming this way, and one locomotive is coming this way, and bam, it was a train wreck. As God began to deal directly with Paul, um, he began, Jesus began to reveal himself to Paul, and he also began to reveal Paul to Paul. Paul began to see pretty clearly the truth about who he was. You can, you can see it here. Notice the question that Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? You see, all of Saul's sins, all of his anger, all of his hatred, all of his murder, all of these threats, surely he committed them against other people. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, you are sinning against me. This is how conversion happens. When when you come face to face with Jesus, the living God, and you begin to realize that ultimately you have sinned against him. You have rebelled against him. You have resisted him. You have taken him out of the center of your life, and you put yourself there. And, And thirdly, when conversion happens, God changes you. When conversion happens, God changes you. Some of these changes happen in an instant, at the moment of your conversion. One of those changes that happens instantly at the moment of your conversion is that when you put your faith in Jesus and repent before him, you are forgiven. Your sins are wiped away. The track record of your sin is erased and it is no more. And you are justified before God. That word justification is a big fancy church word. And all it refers to is God's power to forgive sinners like you and me based on the fact that Jesus died for those sins on the cross. He's paid the penalty, and that frees Jesus or frees God to justify sinners in his name. That happens immediately. The scriptures say that as far as the east is from the west, and that's forever, so far does God separate our transgressions from us. That change happens instantly. There are other changes that God begins in that man or woman's life. It begins a process of change. Some of those changes happen quickly. Others of those changes take a lifetime. You can see in Paul's life, whereas before he was consumed with this passionate hatred of Jesus, after he was saved, Paul had a passionate love of Jesus. He wanted to know him. He wanted to to learn about him and to live with him. Paul also, before he was saved, had this raging hatred, this, this passion to just work hard and pursue Christians and put them to death. 
But after he was saved, Paul took all of that energy, all of those gifts, all of that drive, and he put it to work to bless Christians, to serve them, to make their lives better, to to love them. God begins to change you at conversion. And that leads me to this question. Has God dealt with you? Is God dealing with you right now? Again, in this moment of conversion, it's not about us. It's not about us, you know, putting ourselves in the right place or doing all the right things. This is about God doing his work in your life. Has God dealt with you? Is he dealing with you right now? Whatever the circumstances that may surround it, conversion happens when you see God and then you see you and then you see your need for mercy. Conversion happens when you see God, when you see you, and then you see your need for mercy and because Jesus loves to give mercy and grace to sinners like you and me, we can be saved. You know, so far, Saul's story has taught us a lot about how conversion works, but in, in, the, in the coming verses, in the rest of this story, there's some pretty powerful lessons that maybe for us who have already been saved. And so let's take a look at that in verse 10. It says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. And at this moment, I just wonder if Ananias is thinking, (laughs) Jesus, that's a good one. I thought you said Saul of Tarsus. Because remember, for Ananias and the other believers, Saul was the enemy. He was the last person they ever would have imagined would be saved. This would be like you and me, Jesus coming to maybe you or me maybe 10 years ago or so and saying, hey, I got this guy I need you to pick up at the airport. I want you to go down there and pick him up, bring him to church with you, let him stay at your house for a couple of days. His name is Osama bin Laden. Tall guy, turbans, easy top beard, you can't miss him, all right? Again, remember, for Ananias, there is no question that he viewed Saul and the other believers with him as the last guy on earth that he expected to be saved. Look what happens. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Man, that's sweet words right there. That's sweet words right there. For Ananias to see that God has changed this guy, and he didn't like 
stayed a distance. He didn't treat him like second-class citizens. He said, Brother Saul. That's the magnitude and the depth of God's ability to change a man or woman's life. May you and I respond to people who come out of a broken lifestyle with that same kind of love. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the, on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. One of the most powerful things that we can see here in Saul's story of conversion is that the most unlikely people can be and are converted. God's mercy and power, it's not limited to good people or the people whose lives were sort of set on course for salvation by being raised in a good family or being raised by going to church Um, here's the thing, no amount of sin threatens God's ability to save. There's no amount of sin in a man or woman's life that, that God goes, whoa, that's a lot of sin, I'm not sure I can handle that one. No amount of sin threatens God's ability to save. And what that means is this, don't ever give up on somebody thinking, you know what, they're too far gone to be saved. Maybe you've got a friend, a brother or sister, mom or dad, a son or a daughter, and you'd love for them to be saved. You've been thinking about that, been praying about that for a long time, and you know, gosh, I'm losing hope here. This is just, I'm not seeing any movement at all, no change. Uh, There just seems to be so much resistance, so much anger. So much sin. This story teaches us that God can and will, by his grace, convert the most unlikely of people. Don't give up praying for, thinking about, uh, bringing the name of that son or daughter or friend or mother or father before the Lord and asking him to save them. Sometimes we can begin thinking that our prayers are ineffective and, and there's, they're doing no good. We've, sometimes we measure our prayers by the amount of, of spiritual sensitivity this person is showing or maybe the openness they're showing or maybe the interest that they're showing. Here's the thing. Saul wasn't spiritually sensitive. He wasn't open. He wasn't interested at all. He was utterly closed and yet Jesus saved him. Don't give up praying for, seeking God's face for the heart and soul of that friend, that, that, that relative that, that is not saved. And don't give up speaking the good news of the gospel in love to them. But you know, there's one more thing about Saul's story of conversion to look at today. And this is something special. This is something unique. If you're here this morning, and you've never been saved, 
If you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, first of all, I want you to know I'm glad you're here. Like, really glad. Thank you for being here this morning. But I want you to know that Saul's story, his story of conversion, it's for you. Like, really for you. Later on in, in Saul's life, actually, after he changed his name from Saul to Paul, Paul wrote a letter to a young man who was going to kind of pick up the baton and take, uh, take the, the reins of leadership after Paul died. And in that letter to this young man, Paul is reflecting on his life and, and he's, he's, you know, kind of unpacking the fact that there's not a whole lot of time left for him to live. And I want you to hear what he says. He says this in the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In this statement that Paul writes, at near, again, near the end of his life, as he's looking back and seeing what God had done in his life through the grace and mercy of Jesus, there are two things right there that he says. One is a statement, and the other is an invitation. The statement is that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And did you catch what Paul called himself? He said, I'm the foremost. I'm the worst sinner there ever was. And Jesus saved me. And he did that because of an invitation. The invitation for millions and millions and millions of people who would read that throughout the centuries is to come. Come to Jesus. Come find rest. Come find forgiveness. Come find peace with God. Come find life. Because Jesus is the King. And He's not done with you yet. And so come. Jesus is the King. And he's not done. The story is told some years ago of a world-famous chess player who went along with his friend to visit a museum. 
this world-famous chess player and his friend went into the museum. It was just about closing time. The museum was about to close, and they wanted to see as many works of art as they possibly could. And so this world-famous chess player and his friend kind of established this rhythm. They would come in, they'd look at a picture, they'd study it, and then they'd move on. They'd look at a picture and study it, and then they'd move on. Well, eventually they came to one particular picture. They studied it. The chess player's friend moved on, but the chess player stayed right there. He was enraptured with this painting. The painting was of two men playing chess. And the artist who painted it had titled it Checkmate, which in chess terminology means the game is over. And this this world-famous chess player was enraptured by this painting. He, He just couldn't take his eyes off of it to the point where uh, they were becoming dangerously close to not being able to make it through the rest of the museum because it was closing time. And yet, this chess player was just enraptured by this painting of these guys playing chess. Eventually, the security guard comes and he says, gentlemen, I'm sorry, the museum is closing. It's time to go. You'll need to leave. And right then, this world-famous chess player says, I can't help but look at this picture. And security guard says, well, what's wrong with it? The world-famous chess player says, I'm looking at this picture of two men playing chess. And the artist titled it Checkmate, but he mislabeled it. Because I can tell you by looking at this picture that the king still has one more move. And as long as the king still has one more move, the game is not over. You may be here this morning, and you may think, you know what? I got a lot of sin, a lot of brokenness, done a lot of shameful things that I'm not proud of. Maybe my life's over. Maybe my life is checkmate. I want you to know the fact that you are here, that you're sitting upright, that you're living and breathing and listening to me, is God's way of saying your life is not over. It's not checkmate. I'm the king, and I still have moves that I want to make in your life. The question on the table is, will you respond to him? Jesus has love for you. He has grace and mercy. He longs to pour out in your life. And the question on the table is, will you respond? In a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to thank God for what we've looked at and learned this morning. But if God is dealing with you right now, I'm going to ask that you respond to him. You don't have to do some fancy, complicated list of things. You don't have to pray some long, fancy prayer with big words. 
you can simply say in your heart quietly, Lord, Jesus, I've blown it. I, I've, I realize I have sinned and my sin is against you. I don't deserve your love and mercy, but you want to give it to me? You want to forgive me? Jesus, would you? Would you forgive me? If you want to talk some more about that, if you want to pray together, maybe get some questions answered, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Can we pray? Jesus, we thank you so much for your power to save. In Paul's life, you demonstrated that power as an unbelievable, lasting example for all eternity that there's no amount of sin that threatens your love or your ability to save. I pray, Jesus, for um, that man or woman who may be here who's never uh, put their faith and trust in you, that in you they would find overflowing grace, forgiveness of sins, and new life. And Jesus, for those of us who um, have already responded to you in faith, May we have um, a, a love and a passion and a desire for the men and women in our lives who don't already know you. May we go to them and say, look, I got to tell you about Jesus. I got to tell you about him. Jesus, thank you for being a savior. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Your love is amazing. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Hey, guys, thank you so much. You all are very, very loved. And again, if there's anything that we can do to serve you, to help you, let us know.